Welcome to the podcast of the River Anglican Church in Blacksburg, Virginia. Today is Trinity Sunday, and priest Chris Meckley is preaching about how small sins can be big dangers. So here's Chris. Uh, we we pray with me as we, we begin our sermon today. Guide and direct us, O Lord, always and everywhere with the light of your holy word, that we may discern with clear vision your presence among us and partake with worthy intention of your divine mystery. We ask this for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Meckley. Uh, I'm a priest here at the River. And uh, for the last few weeks, I've been the, the priest in charge. Uh, that's ending in, in about three hours or so when I leave for Camp Booyah. Um, and then Jonathan will be back tomorrow. So we're going to have like a 12-hour period where there's you know, no priest here. So, um, uh, And uh, you know, Jonathan is, is excited to get back. I haven't actually heard very much from him. I did get a, um, a picture of him on some of his vacation. Uh, there it is. Uh, that's, that's a real picture, not doctored in any way. That's actually, um, he's excited to come back. Um, and, you know, we, we believe he will be back tomorrow. Yeah, that's good. So we'll see. Uh, right now, we're in the fifth week of our sermon series on 1 John, uh, Life Lessons in 1 John. And today, we're going to be looking at the second half of, of 1 John chapter 3, which Jack just read. Uh, as far as books of the Bible go, I, I personally love John's writing style, um, his gospel, his letters, Revelation. Those are some of my, my favorite books to read and to study. Um, and one of the reasons I, I love his writing so much is because John puts this real sense of, of the dramatic and the cosmic importance of what's, what he's writing about. John's never looking at just the surface level of what's going on in the world. He's always trying to explain to his readers, which, which is his church, What's happening behind the scenes? What's going on spiritually, cosmically, beyond the observable world? This is why John opens his gospel by contrasting the light of Jesus and the darkness of the world. And he says early on, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And like that light and dark imagery, there's, there's not a lot of gray area in John's writing. Instead, there are these stark dichotomies, light and dark, life and death, love and hate, children of God and children of the devil. In John's writing, you're either on God's side or you're against him. There's no middle ground. In Revelation, John reports the words of Jesus to the church in Laodicea, and he says, I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. These are the words of Jesus, but this is John's outlook as well, that there's a war going on, and there's two sides. In the passage we read today, um, there's not really like a whole lot of new material that's introduced that we haven't seen in the last few weeks of our, of our study. Uh, in, my, my Bible on, in chapter 2 labels it as love and hatred for fellow believers, and then this section of chapter 3 is labeled more on love and hate. So it doesn't even get its own like section heading. It just is, you know, part two, basically. And at first blush, it might seem like this section doesn't have a lot to say to most of us. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Well, that's pretty easy. I've, I've never considered murdering anyone. And, and I hope that statement is true for most of you as well. 
Um, the majority of Christians and non-Christians alike won't ever murder someone. And on the flip side, most of us are, are never likely to find ourselves in a situation that could involve the literal laying down of our lives for our brothers and sisters. But like I said before, John doesn't deal in gray areas, but in stark contrast. In John's thought, these are ultimately the only ways of living, like Cain as a murderer, or like Jesus as a sacrifice. And so to understand what this passage has to say to us in our everyday lives, we're going to look a little bit deeper at what it means to be like Cain, what it means to be like Christ. So we're going to start, we're going to actually go back to Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel. I'm going to read just a few verses from, from Genesis. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now I'm sure this is a story that most of you have heard before. You're probably pretty familiar with the, the basics. First John says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. But if we look a little deeper into the passage, we'll see that, that murder is not Cain's only sin. Murder is not the only way that Cain belonged to the evil one, to use John's phrase. The first thing we see is that God didn't look with favor on Cain's sacrifice like he did on Abel's. In Hebrews, it tells us, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. And so what made Abel's sacrifice better? Was it that uh, Abel sacrificed meat and Cain sacrificed vegetables? I know I would prefer the meat to the vegetables, but... Did God just like Abel more? Did he prefer him? Here in Genesis it says, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering. But then it clearly specifies that Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And so we can assume Cain's offering wasn't necessarily the first fruits. It wasn't necessarily the best of his harvest. But Abel's was the first and the best of his flock. And so Cain's sacrifice seems like it's not made as willingly and, and joyfully, but out of love, but out of obligation. It's a burden for Cain to bring this sacrifice. And the next thing we notice is Cain's reaction to God's displeasure. Rather than regret or repentance or how can I do better next time over his actions, Cain responds to God's displeasure with anger and indignation. Even though it's clear from God's words that Cain is the one in the wrong. Why are you angry, God asks. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? That sounds really familiar to what I say to my, my boys a lot. Like, why are you mad that you can't get ice cream? You didn't eat your dinner. If you do what's right... Once you get what you want. 
But rather than taking responsibilities for his own actions, Cain views God as the one who's in the wrong. And then we see his anger combined with this envy and resentment towards Abel. And we see his hatred grow. And out of that hatred, Cain moves to deception. He deceives Abel and lures him out alone into the field. And then his rage and his envy and his hatred result in the murder of his brother. And and the Greek verb that 1 John uses is actually the word for butchering an animal. It says, Cain belonged to the evil one and butchered his brother. Show the brutal and the heinous nature of his sin. And so, yes, Cain was a murderer, but he was not a murderer first. First, he was selfish and angry and resentful and envious and deceitful. And Cain practiced these smaller sins, and in time, he was formed into one who could conceivably murder even his own brother out of rage and envy. And this is how sin works. This is how sin works in our lives as well. We're all born sinners, but we're not all born murderers. But like God says to Cain, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And so this is what it means to be like Cain, to belong to the evil one. Not necessarily to be a murderer, but to allow sin to rule over you. First in small ways, anger, hatred, deceit, selfishness. And as we allow these sins to rule over us, they change who we are. When we don't rule over our sin, but allow it to rule over us, we become formed more and more into people whose default reactions are sinful. And as we're formed this way, bigger and bigger sins begin to seem smaller and smaller. And they become easier for us to justify. And our conscience is bothered less and less when we commit them. Uh, when I was 19, I was a freshman at, at Grove City College. And like a, like a lot of teenage guys, I struggled a lot with anger at that time. Um, looking back, I didn't really have that much to be angry about. Um, and I feels kind of like stupid looking back, but I was angry anyway. And usually that played itself out in small ways, like just being angry at people or situations internally. But as I continued to let that anger rule over me, it started to come out more and more at people in outbursts um, and in overreactions. Um, And one of the places that that came out the most was in competitive situations like intramural sports, um, a very serious thing. And at one point, finally, in this intramural indoor soccer game, um, the game was getting pretty physical and pretty heated. And one of my friends got taken out by a player on the other team. And the next thing I knew, I was across the court and I was being held back by two of my friends because I was going to get into a fist fight with this guy. And it wasn't even like a conscious decision at that point. It was just reactionary. I'd never been in a fist fight before in my life. And growing up, I was not someone who you would think is likely to get into a fist fight. And I was going to a small private Christian school. And so it's all, it's really stupid, but I had given in to these small, uncontrolled bits of anger. And this is the sin that was crouching at my door. And eventually I was ruled over by that. I was ruled by rage in that moment. And that was, that was a watershed moment for me. I knew that something had to change in my life because anger like that was going to destroy me and it's going to destroy every relationship that I had. 
I wouldn't have put it in these words at the time, but I was becoming more and more like Cain. I was being ruled by the sin that was crouching outside my door. And as I became more and more like Cain, I was becoming less and less like Christ. And that's not what we're meant to be. We're not meant to be people who are ruled by sin. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not be like Cain, John says. Instead, he gives us the example of Jesus, who laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, just like most of us are never going to go far enough to become murderers, most of us probably won't face a situation that involves literally laying down our lives for another. But just like the pinnacle of sin is murder, the pinnacle of love is self-sacrifice. Being like Christ does mean being willing to lay down your life for your brother or sister. But it doesn't only mean that. It means living the kind of righteous, virtuous life that forms you into the type of person who would give up your life without a second thought. We can see in 1 John that just like murder is not the only thing that makes you like Cain, laying down your life is not the only thing that makes you like Christ. John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? To be like Christ rather than Cain means to be compassionate and generous. In this context, context, it's specifically talking about to the body of Christ, the church. That's what the, the brothers and sisters means, the brethren. John's using familial language to describe the church because in the early church, these are not just people you see once a week on Sundays. Right? If we do church the way that it was in the early church, this is meant to be your family. These here are your brothers and sisters, your mothers and fathers, your sons and daughters. And John emphasizes this relationship and the mutual responsibility that comes with that with strong language. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? It's a rhetorical question, and it's John's way of saying, the love of God can't be in that person if they can ignore the suffering of their brothers and sisters. And it's a warning to John's church and and to us to examine how we're living. Are we like Cain or are we like Christ? Because if you're living like Christ, there will be evidence. You'll have compassion on your brothers and sisters. You'll love not just with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And another aspect of of Christ's likeness in this passage that's easy to overlook is um, having our eyes open and being aware of what's going on in the family of God. John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need. This awareness of those in need, it's an important aspect of the character of Jesus. Jesus is constantly going aside to those in need much to the chagrin of the religious leaders and sometimes his disciples as well. And he especially turned aside to those who others had given up on, the Samaritan woman at the well, the demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs, the woman who had been bleeding and ceremonially ceremonially unclean for 12 years, Zacchaeus the tax collector who had plenty of material wealth but was spiritually needy, 
Jesus was always seeing those in need and from there having compassion on them and helping them. And his awareness of those around him is, is a really important aspect of his life and ministry. And part of the reason Jesus had such an awareness is because he was so intimately involved and invested in the people he encountered. That's one of the most beautiful things about the incarnation, about God becoming flesh, is that he made his dwelling among us. Translated literally, it would be he pitched his tent among us. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates it as the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Uh, I really like that imagery, but a lot of our neighborhoods today are actually so divided by privacy fences and and garages and big yards that you could go uh, your whole life without ever talking to your neighbor sometimes. Um, So we might say the word became flesh and blood and moved into the guest room or uh, onto the living room couch. If you're going to be like Christ who laid down his life for us, and if we're going to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, We have to be aware of what's going on in those lives, what's going on in the family of God. And we have to be intimately involved in those lives. And maybe the harder part is we have to be willing to let other people be intimately aware of what's going on in our lives and to be intimately involved in our lives. This is part of what it means to lay down our lives for each other, to be mutually dependent in a world that that highly values independence. As John says, the laying down of our lives is how we show that the love of God is in us. And this kind of love, the love of God, that's evidenced by laying down our lives, is is different from the love, from love as most of the world sees love. And too often we fall into the trap of loving as the world loves, rather than how God loved us. And the world's love can take a lot of different forms. Um, when some people talk about love, they're talking about an emotional and romantic connection. But if that's all that love is, it's, it's really easy to fall in and out of that kind of love. It's temporary and fleeting. And some people, when they talk about love, they mean uh, tolerance and acceptance. And again, that's a, that's a piece of love. But there can be a time when it's actually more loving not to tolerate and accept what someone is doing. Uh, a simple example, my youngest son, Ransom, when he gets really mad, he'll sometimes pull his own hair, and sometimes he'll pull my hair. Um, you'll notice that my wife has short hair because she's smarter than I am, um, but he'll pull his own hair, and he'll, like, he'll rip it out, and sometimes he'll, he'll like bang his head on the ground, and he's not really hurting anyone else by doing that. He's not doing it hard enough to really hurt himself, but I'm intolerant of that behavior as his father. It's more loving for me to stop him from hurting himself, even though I'm, I'm not accepting what he's doing. And sometimes love, according to the world, is humanitarianism, trying to better the lives of others. And once again, that's a good thing. That's a piece of the love of God. But it's not the whole of what love is. Uh, G.P. Lewis is a, is a Methodist pastor from the early 1900s, and This is what he says about the insufficiency of humanitarian love. It's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. 
Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And we can see that especially in, you know, whatever the, the political debate of the moment is. We see various protests where both sides claim to be on the side of love, but love is never really evident in either side of those kind of debates. And sometimes love in our, in our world takes the form of blind devotion. Sometimes people give this type of love to the partner or a spouse or uh, an authority figure or a political party or a cause or a country. And, and devotion and loyalty are a part of love as well. But sometimes true love requires challenging and correcting the one we love. Proverbs 27 tells us, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And all of these are, are, are small pieces of what love is, but none of them are the true love of God. The true love of God is to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. It's a love that is self-sacrificial, intimate and personal. It's not based on ideals and words, but on action and truth. It's a love that is outward focused and fruitful. It's a love that has its eyes open, sees need, has compassion, and takes action. But most of all, as John says at the end of this passage, it's a love that comes from Jesus Christ. He starts the section of his, of this, of his letter saying, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And at the end of this section, he says, this is God's command. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. Jesus is our ultimate example of this kind of love. And he's our only source for true, the true love of God. Apart from Jesus, we can never have this kind of love, but only shallow imitations of it. And so we should reflect on our own lives. Whose way am I following? Am I being like Cain or am I being like Christ? Am I more likely to be a murderer or a, a sacrifice? According to John, in the end, those are the only two choices. We'll either be a life taker or a life giver. And so we need to examine ourselves and we need to let the light of Christ shine on our lives and expose the places where we are like Cain. What are the small sins that you tolerate? What are the small sins crouching at your door? They may not seem like much, but God tells us they desire to have you, so you must rule over them. And we also need to let the light of Christ shine where we're becoming more like Christ so that we can continue to grow. Where in your life can you follow the example of Jesus by laying down your life for the sake of others? Where might you need to open your eyes to see the needs of your brothers and sisters? And when you see that need, what do you have to give? The passage specifically mentions material possessions, but that's not all we have to offer. And material needs are far from the only needs that people have. You may see a brother or sister in need of spiritual help, or someone in need of emotional support, or friendship. You might see parents struggling with their young kids or their teenagers. You might see teenagers struggling with their identity. You might see international students struggling to adapt to a new culture. Or older people struggling with the aging process. There are countless ways that we and our brothers and sisters struggle. And there are countless ways that we can lay down our lives, even in small ways, to have compassion on them. 
And this is the love that each and every one of us is called to. Love that is self-sacrificial. Love that through our death to self brings life to others. And it's a small reflection of Jesus' death, which brought us new and eternal life. John says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one. Instead, be like Christ, who laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at theriverinrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 9.15 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.